0: Good morning, everybody. My name is R. Dallas Green, and this morning we're going to be in the latter part of chapter four of Acts, a snapshot of the early church. You know, if you take pictures of your family, and this would have been been one of the most early photos of the church. Uh, there was a mighty movement in the first century. Jesus had ascended to heaven, he had sent the Spirit, the Spirit descended at Pentecost. The church was born. And Peter preached there a great sermon on the southern steps of the temple and 3000 people were brought into the kingdom of God. So Peter and John, we learned the story in chapter 3, were going up to the temple for prayer. They had prayed 10 days for the spirit to come. The Christian community we know was devoted to prayer, and they saw a man who could not walk lying at the beautiful gate begging. And Peter said, "Look at me." And the and the man looked at him, expecting to get something from Peter. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And for the first time, the man stood to his legs. Peter helped him up. He went walking and leaping, praising God. Peter was called on the carpet by the religious authorities, and they asked him, by what power in what name did you do this? And Peter said, if I'm being held to account for an act of kindness to a crippled person, Then know this, this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus who God raised from the dead, he stands here healed in the name of Jesus. For their salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. So they ordered Peter and the apostles to no longer speak or preach in Jesus' name. They tried to intimidate them, to silence them, to shut them down. So when they were released, we learned last week, they went back to their people. And the believers had no political connections. But the believers had a higher authority to turn to. When they gathered, they said, Sovereign Lord. Our hope as believers isn't in the person who occupies the political office. Our hope as believers is not in the laws that are passed by Congress. Our hope is not that there will be a red wave of Republicans elected to office. Our hope is not that Nancy Pelosi will no longer be the Speaker of the House. Our hope is not that Joe must go. Our hope is in the sovereign God of the universe who rules. He is in control of who is ever in control. God sits on the throne ruling his universe. Jesus is the reigning, ruling, returning king. Jesus is king over all things. Jesus is Lord over all lords. And they acknowledge that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and everything in them. God is even sovereign over what happened to Jesus. Of course, they plotted against him. The politicians, Pilate, Herod, soldiers, the Jews, had done only what God had said beforehand. Verse 29, chapter 4. Now, Lord, consider their threats. The religious leaders had threatened them with arrest, with imprisonment, with flogging, even death. They would try to use their power to shut them down. But listen to their prayer. Lord, enable your servants. They identified themselves as servants of the living God. To speak your word, to tell the gospel, to be obedient to the great commission, to make disciples of all nations. With great boldness and courage. They were believing that the spirit of God could enable them to be bold. Courage is not acting In the absence of fear, courage is acting in spite of the fears and moving forward. Verse 30. So stretch out your hand, God, just as you stretch out your hand in Egypt to deliver your people from bondage. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, Jesus had done miracles, signs, and wonders. And they themselves would have known somebody who was healed by Jesus. I mean, these miracles didn't happen in a secret place. The miracles validated the message and the messenger. Likewise, the apostles were given authority to heal people. The power of the Holy Spirit was manifested in his people. Can you imagine? People with various diseases being healed, people without eyesight receiving their sight. People with leprosy, this death sentence, now becoming clean. Many today are skeptical of miracles. They say that God did miracles back then through Jesus and the apostles, but then the apostles died off. So God has stopped, ceased doing miracles. This position is called cessationalist a big word on the other hand some believe that God did miracles through Jesus God hasn't changed he's the same yesterday today and forever God has given authority in the name of Jesus to do healing so God is continuing to do miracles this position is called the continuationist now I know we don't have apostles but God validated their message with miracles But we do have a God who hasn't changed. He's able to do miracles whenever he pleases. Now, to talk about miracles for a moment, we have to distinguish the natural from the supernatural. It's natural for the sun to rise and the sun to set. But it's unnatural or supernatural when Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still, that they could win the battle. It's uh, natural for the rain to fall and it's seasoned. But it's a miracle when the rain doesn't fall for three years like Elijah prayed. And then Elijah prayed again, and the rain fell, right? So natural has to do with common grace and providence. So if you have a medical problem like I do, let's say you have a degenerative disc, and you go to a chiropractor like Amir, and he lays his hands upon you, and you get an adjustment, or you go to a physical therapist, and they do traction or you have to have surgery, you're dealing with the natural, right? It's all part of God's common grace. God has given wisdom to the practitioner. They use their experience to help you. God providentially put them in your path. So how good is God to give us natural remedies to our problems? The natural has to do with common grace. The supernatural has to do with extraordinary grace, God does something that amazes us. God demonstrates his power. God supersedes the natural. Now I've never spoken of this before, but I'd like to speak about the natural and the supernatural in my life. In the year 2015, my left flank, that part above my left hip, was protruding, was bulging. Debbie noticed it and said are there's a bulge in your left hip i said that's just my love handle i'm getting older she said let's just send a photo to chris my doctor's son down in birmingham and see what he says and chris upon seeing this bulge said dad you need to see a doctor right away so i was able to get an appointment in middletown to see my doctor and he said it's a lipoma it's but putting on the safe side let's have a ct scan So he ordered me a CT scan. I went in and got the CT scan. The surgeon who read the CT scan said, that needs to come out right away. I have a cancellation tomorrow, and uh, I'm willing to um, take it out. So the surgeon performed the surgery, and he said, in my 36 years of practice as a surgeon, I've never seen a lipoma like your lipoma. First of all, it was completely encased, It was the size of a grapefruit, and uh, it had its own blood supply. Now, I don't know everything about grapefruits, but grapefruits should grow on trees, right? Not inside your body. And I was growing my own grapefruit. It kind of started as a lemon, then became sort of an orange, and then this grapefruit. It was just kind of growing exponentially inside of me. So they sent the report off to the hospital. The hospital came back, and then they sent it back to Mayo Clinic. And this is what the Mayo Clinic said when they saw this Um, slice. They said, thank you for this challenging and difficult case. This kind of cancer only grows in the lungs and then spreads to the whole body. Your cancer was encapsulated. You had a cancer called simple spindle cell lung cancer. That's what I had. Now, I believe that God showed me common grace when he gave me the diagnosis and the surgery. But I believe that God showed me extraordinary grace when the cancer was encapsulated and didn't spread. God demonstrated his power to contain the cancer. God superseded the natural. God did something that amazed me, my doctor, the surgeon, Mayo Clinic. The survival rates on this kind of cancer are very low. It's a very aggressive kind of cancer that often goes undiagnosed until it's more advanced. There is no treatment for spindle single-cell cancer, only surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. The tumor board argued what to do with me. (laughs) Should we give this guy radiation chemotherapy? And they decided not to. God did a work in my life. He used people. He used people like Dr. Hall in Middletown, Dr. Brand the Surgeon, the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, FMH. Many will believe if I pray, God will heal me. But God uses people to bring healing. And even though God was at work in my cancer, God protected me. And God supernaturally did a work. And every year I go back to Hopkins and they do this follow-up and they do an MRI on me. And I said to my doctor, I said, if you'll worry about this, I'll just choose not to worry. I'll just put this into your hands. If I have a problem, let me know. And for seven years now, I haven't worried about it because it's in God's hands. So the first thing I want you to know about a great church is they're a praying church. And this church was praying that God would do healings. The second thing I want you to see in the story is in verses 32 and following, which I'm going to read to you, which kind of finishes up the book of Acts, the chapter 4. Here's what it says. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. The second thing we find this morning is unity. The believers in the early church were of one heart and one mind. Paul's prayer, he prays in Romans, says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity. The scriptures speak of heart to refer to the place of deepest thoughts and feelings. The heart is the inner spirit. Luke is saying that the church was united in the deepest part of their being. There was no schism, there was no division, there was no disunity. Sometimes when we meet someone before a word is spoken, we sense a oneness with them, with her, with him. If we're both believers, we share a fundamental unity at the core of our being. LaTanya, who spoke briefly at the memorial service, said about Elaine that sometimes Elaine's prayers for her were exactly what she was dealing with, though she had never shared it with her. It was evidence of the Spirit's prompting. That doesn't mean that believers will see eye to eye on everything, right? Unity is not uniformity. It's wrong to think that all believers will see life the same way. We won't Educate our kids all the same way. The men won't all cut their hair short the same way. The women won't all wear dresses the same way. We all won't listen to the same kind of music, you see. In fact, the insistence that others be like us is one of the most disunifying mindsets of the church that causes the judgmental inflexibility. You see, the church has room for Republicans and Democrats. The church is composed of parents who homeschool as well as those who send their kids to private schools and public schools and Christian schools. There's men in the church with short hair. There's men in the church with long hair. There's men in the church with no hair. There's people in the church that dance. There's people in the church that don't dance. And I get asked, can Christians dance? And I say, well, some can and some can't. Women have the freedom to wear whatever they want to wear, right? Believe it or not, you know, some Christians like different kinds of music. So you must understand that we have different histories and experiences and preferences. And I can't elevate my preferences to say all Christians should be like me. One of the wonders of Christ is that he honors our individuality while bringing us into beautiful unity with each other. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And different kinds of workings, but the same God. The unity of the church is reflective of the tri-unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, a pretzel has three loops, right? It's all t- tied together by the dough. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father and the Son. They are equal in their essence, but different in their individuality. They maintain their unity by reflecting, respecting one another and submitting to one another. And we maintain unity in the body by respecting one another and submitting to authority. We foster division by disrespecting authority and insisting on our own way. Tozer said it this way, has it ever occurred to you That 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to one another. They are one accord being tuned not to each other but to another standard we must individually bow. So 100 worshipers are in tune to each other by being not unity conscious but by looking to Christ. So let's think about unity for a moment. If you go to hear an orchestra, right, Before they actually begin to play, they're all doing their own thing. The horns are blowing, the strings are tuning up, the drums are banging, and then the conductor comes to the rostrum and bangs his baton, and they give him his attention, and they begin to play on the same sheet of music. What happened? They brought their individual instrument to submit to the leadership of the conductor and the piece of music. If you go to a football game before they actually begin playing the football game, look out on the field, what's happening? The linemen are practicing, their blocking, the receivers are running their routes, the kickers are kicking their field goals, and then there's the kickoff, right? And when the game begins, the receiver runs the route and the quarterback throws the ball according to the play. They're all unified. Jesus is praying for the unity of his church. I pray for those who will believe in me through this message, that all of them may be one, that we might be of one heart and mind, that we might love each other, that we might not have turf wars, that we might collaborate and cooperate with each other, that we would have a kingdom mindset, that we wouldn't be divided by denominations, that we would be brought to complete unity, that the church of Jesus Christ would be brought to complete unity because a house divided against itself will never stand, and two cannot walk together lest they be agreed. So he prayed for unity. The third aspect of the church we see here is power. With great power... They continued to testify to the message of the resurrection. What was the message that tied them all together? What tied them all together was the message of Jesus and his resurrection. The resurrection itself was a game changer. Remember, Jesus was good friends with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He and his disciples would often stop off there at the house, and Martha got all stressed out, you remember? with all the preparations for that meal. She was the firstborn, responsible for hospitality. You know, meals don't make themselves. Tables don't set themselves. Water glasses don't fill themselves. So Martha was all stressed out. And she was stressed out about a meal. She was even more stressed out about her brother. Apparently, he wasn't taking his medicine. He was getting worse and worse. His name was Lazarus. So Martha and Mary sent word to Jesus that the one whom you love is sick. Implied? Get on your horse, Jesus, and get down here now because it's not good. Jesus said to his disciples, this illness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God that God's son may be glorified in it. So Lazarus, who was ill, passed away. And four days later, Jesus showed up. Now, the Jews believe that the soul hovered around the body for three days. So on the fourth day, a person was really dead. And at the edge of town... Martha went out to meet Jesus, to give him a piece of her mind. She was angry and disappointed and grieving. And she said, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said, your brother is going to rise again. And she said, sure, I know. He'll rise again like everybody else in the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. I gave life to your brother. I can raise your brother back to life. For he who believes in me will live even after he dies. There is no hope in the reincarnation, but there is hope in the resurrection. Because Jesus Christ himself is the resurrection. Elaine Henderson, we remember this week, believed that Jesus is is who he said he is. She didn't go to heaven because of her good works. She went to heaven because of the good work Jesus had done for her. She trusted in the finished work of Jesus. D.L. Moody said, Someday you will hear that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe it. (laughs) I was born in the flesh in 1837, I was born in the Spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh will die, but that which is born of the Spirit will live forever and ever and ever. There's a power that flows through a believer when there's a hope in the resurrection. Peter said, we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. A great church has a great message and a great power. You could say there was an explosive power as they began to testify to the resurrection. The the guards had tried to keep him in the tomb. Pilate had said, station the guards there and keep it as secure as you know how. But then on that Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us take a look inside. And Jesus had risen from the dead. They put Jesus in the tomb on Friday afternoon. Since it was before sundown, it counted as a day. His body rested the second day until early on Sunday morning, the third day, when he rose again from the dead. The the message of the church is the message of the resurrection. Well, how much power is available to us? A man bought a Rolls, Rolls Royce and wondered about something. He wondered, how much horsepower does this engine have? So he asked the salesman, he said, how much horsepower does my car have? He didn't know, so he sent a message to the headquarters. And the president of the company answered back and said, sufficient. How much power is there in the resurrection? Sufficient. There's sufficient power. How do we tap into the power? We have to be connected. The power of the life of God flowing through us. We hit a light switch and the room will only light if the switch is connected to the power source. There is sufficient power to tap into. There is power in the resurrection to live a pure life in the midst of an impure world. There's the power of the resurrection to withstand temptation when you are tempted. There's the power of the resurrection to go through a trial when life is tough. They testified to the power of God. Fourthly, there is grace. It says in verse 33 that much grace was upon them. One of the greatest fears people have in this world is to be judged. They will judge me at school for what I wear. They'll judge me online for my various views. They'll judge me for how I parent. No one likes to be judged or come under judgment. We don't even like to be judged for our performance in a performance review by a judgmental person who loves to find fault and never affirms or never encourages. How different is grace than judgment? To get judged is to say you aren't enough, you don't measure up. To get grace is to receive somebody as they are, but to love them too much for them to stay as they are, to speak truth into their life. We are saved by God's grace, and we are healed by God's grace. We are justified by God's grace. We are sanctified progressively by God's grace, and we are strengthened and sustained by God's grace. When I think about grace, I think about a woman who was heavily in debt, who bought a car she couldn't afford, and was paying exorbitant interest. We came alongside and helped her to uh, assess her financial situation. And the lender, was, believe it or not, was willing to take the new car back. There's a family in the church who saw her situation and gave her a, a car. And then she called that car God's car because she would just pick people up and bring them to church and use it for God. You see, by grace, the lender took the car back. And by grace, she got a car And she was so overflowing with thankfulness, she offered people ride with her car because of grace. The the appropriate response to grace is always thanksgiving. One example in the Old Testament of grace is the name Mephibosheth. Could you try to say that? (laughs) Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was the oldest son of King Saul, the heir apparent to the throne. When David took down Goliath, the heart of Jonathan was knit to David. They made vows to one another to always look after each other, and even to their descendants. Mephibosheth was being carried by a nurse when he was just a little guy, five years old, and she dropped him, and he had a lameness to his legs. His father Jonathan was killed in battle with his father Saul on Mount Gilboa. So David, when he became king, he had a choice to either wipe out Saul's family or show them grace. And this is what happens in 2 Samuel 9. David said, who shall I show the kindness of God to? Who shall I show the favor of God to? Who shall I show grace to? Do any of Saul's descendants still live? And he learned of Mephibosheth. And he invited Mephibosheth into the king's quarters. And he restored all of Jonathan's land to Mephibosheth. And he invited him to eat at the king's table. And I mention this to you to say, there's going to come a table where you're going to gather in just a few days. And some of us will uh, sit down at the table to a great feast. But you know what will overflow in our hearts is this feeling of thankfulness for God's goodness to us, his generosity, his favor to us. The hearts of the early church were so full of thankfulness because the grace of God was poured out upon them. And then there was generosity. They shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, they took lands or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to whoever had needs. God said, you will always have the poor amongst you. But I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers, toward the poor and needy in the land. When you come into the land and live in houses that you didn't build, you drink from wells you didn't dig, eat from trees you didn't plant, don't forget the Lord Almighty. And don't forget the poor in the land. You see, the spirit of generosity seemed to permeate the church. They saw or heard of a need, Somebody's out of work. Somebody's sick. And they did something about it. There were people who sold their homes, their second homes, in order to provide for people without. They saw this as a huge opportunity. The church itself has shown itself through Samaritan's Purse. We saw that with our growth club, that the kids, out of their own resources, gave $440 dollars. Do you think the church do you think the church can look at their example and say they made a sacrifice we can make a sacrifice and come up with $440,000. Do you think it's possible? If a spirit of generosity begins flowing through the church. So, Luke gives us a snapshot of the church in the first century. First of all, they were a people of prayer. We know that where there's no prayer, there's no power. And where there's some prayer, there's some power. But where there's much prayer, there's much power. If you go to Jerusalem sometime with me, you'll go to the Wailing Wall. And there you'll see rabbis, hundreds of rabbis, praying for the rebuilding of Jerusalem for the Messiah to come. We need to be people of prayer. Secondly, the church was unified. They had a common vision. There's plenty of division and schism and strife in our world. We aren't the United States of America anymore. We're the, the, divided, the divided states of America. We seem to have lost our vision of why we exist. We're pulled in so many directions. It seems everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks they're right. But the church has been given a vision. We exist to be disciples who make disciples who live in love like Jesus. We'll do this one-on-one in triads, small groups, women's, men's, teaching people how to walk with Jesus. Thirdly, the church had a message. They would testify to the power of the resurrection. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And the church would be full of grace. We don't need to be judged. We need grace. And last... The church would be known for its generosity, that flowing out of thankfulness, they would be willing to sacrifice on, with one another. You know, the good news of the church is always better than the bad news of the world. When the evening news comes on, I say to Debbie, would you like to watch a little bad news? Because I know the good news, and I watch the news and I get the bad news. There are tragedies everywhere you look. There's division everywhere you look. But let this church be a place of prayer, a place where we have unity, a place where we have a solid message we don't deviate from, a place where we show grace to one another, and a place where generosity flows out of our thankfulness, seeing needs and trying to meet them. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this snapshot of the early church. What would you see, Lord, what do you see when you take a snapshot of your church in the 21st century? Would you awaken us, Lord? Would you revitalize us? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? Would you give us the hunger and the thirst for righteousness? Would you give us a craving for the Word of God? Would you allow us, Lord, when we gather to feel that unity, to feel that love, to be able to fellowship with each other, God, thank you that you have birthed the church and you have sustained the church. Would you bring the church back, Lord? The church needs to come back and be a powerful voice in this world. So God, would you use us for your kingdom's sake to be the version of your church in the 21st century that resembles so much the church you began in Jerusalem? We ask in Jesus' name.